Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie, and I'm excited to welcome Luis Cañadel, co-founder of Treinta. Treinta launched in 2020 to help Latin American small business and micro business owners manage their companies online, including bookkeeping and tracking of inventory and expenses. With over 5 million small businesses already on the platform, Treinta has recently raised a $46 million Series A from top investors, including PayU, Process, Liontree, and other big players in Latin America. Luis, welcome. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. So it was only two years ago that you launched your company and you co-founded it with somebody that you'd met at university. Let me ask you as an initial question, um, how did you reunite with your co-founder, Manhei Lu, and how did you know that he would be the right person to work on this company with you? So we actually became very close friends at university back 10 years ago, and our relationship uh, didn't really fade away at any time. So we became close friends after graduating uh, from university. When we were at university, we also were part of the same consulting association, which was like semi work type of things that we did and uh, I could see how it was to work with him. After graduating, we in fact also worked together for a while in a consulting company. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was a boutique that uh, had just launched a Madrid office and had between five and ten consultants at that time. So it was really a very small environment and uh, we could work together and despite having very similar backgrounds, on paper, uh, the skills that we have, I think, are very different. My co-founder is is really amazing at getting into the details of things and digging in into things you have just learned about, uh, technical things and like having a very rapid uh, learning curve in those things. While I'm much more about the big picture of stuff. So when I decided that it was time for me to, to start the business, he was one of the first names that popped into my head. Well, I'm thinking at Madrid is such a beautiful city. And I, I'm, I have thoughts of you working together at this boutique consulting company and really having the opportunity to hone and combine your skills and having that segue off of uh, your experiences, your shared experiences at university. It, it's such a great foundation. And I think in a lot of ways explains what has been very rapid success in such a, uh, a short time frame when you really think about it. And, you know, Luis, you were able to raise a pretty quick uh, friends and family round in 2020. 
Can you share with our audience what were some of the early benchmarks that you measured in order to raise the next round of financing in 2021? Um, Were you more focused on users or monetization? So we did raise around half a million in pre-seed out of which around 150K was literally friends and family with a PowerPoint presentation. And looking back now that we have raised 60 million, probably it was the most difficult round because people investing were friends and family that didn't know anything about startups and couldn't really understand why a PowerPoint presentation has value. We got into YC, got the check also from, from another, from a syndicate. And it was in March of last year, of 2021, that we went to raise our first real round, our seed round. Mm-hmm. And we did have a benchmark of other startups because it, it's very hard to like put science into, into the valuation of an early stage startup. It's very difficult to justify in an objective way. So I think benchmarks are an adequate tool, which can be very helpful. And we were very fortunate that there were a handful of startups in Asia, in India and in Southeast Asia, that were trying to solve a similar thing and that had raised very large early stage rounds. And we benchmarked us against them with the amount of users that we had because we weren't monetizing at the time. And we really weren't monetizing either when we were raising our Series A. We have, mm-hmm. we have just begun monetizing very recently. And so yeah, the benchmark was important. At the end of the day, I think the valuation that you end up having, the round size, yeah. just like depends on like how much demand you have. Mm-hmm. And the interplay between the supply and demand of your startup and the private funding market, and also how well you manage the fundraising process. So in our case, it went super well because for the seed round, we were looking for 3 million and then ended up raising 14. So wow. everything went very smoothly. That's fantastic. And it does make sense to be able to identify and and then benchmark against competitors. And it is to raise three times more than actually more than three, four times what you were going for with that seed round. It's uh, It says quite a bit. And, you know, talking about users, you were quoted as uh, developing many test pilots to better understand your customers that would ultimately help you to scale in the way that you have. Did you, Luis, have a thesis? Um, And what was one of the very first tests that you developed um, or, you know, that, that you developed and pilot tested for your app? And also, if you can share with our audience what that growth was like with respect to the pilot. So we did build the product in a very lean way, meaning that we had a very basic MVP that we focused on launching as as soon as possible. It took one developer less than a month to launch the first version of our product, which is basically a mobile app. That's fast. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was very fast because we wanted to get feedback from users and uh, from real users using a real product. So one of the first things that we focused on testing was identifying what would be the core value prop of our product. We had an hypothesis that was that the fact that users uh, get to, to use our product will save them a lot of time, and that's something that did happen. Mm -hmm. And that would be the main thing that would attract users and keep users retained. But what we discovered was that, in fact, the fact of having extra insight by having the data organized and the control that this gives them on, on their business and allows them to do better decisions, that's really the core value prop of Trend. And we find out about that in the first few weeks after launching. And a fun story is that, uh, as, as many people probably know, Trenta means 30 in English. And the idea of that name was that we save users uh, 30 minutes a day by using Trenta in bookkeeping and inventory management related tasks. Uh, uh, so it's funny because uh, we picked the name thinking that was our core value prop. We found that it wasn't. It's still something like a core thing in our product that they can save time, but it's not the number one thing. But still, we kept the name because we really liked it. And answering to your question is, if we had significant growth, it took us a while. It, it took us around four months of really testing hypotheses and building a more sophisticated product with a new version every single week until we started to grow more significantly. I think we spent around $50 a week in digital marketing just to have a solid and stable inflow of users to make sure we could track how cohorts, funnels uh, were evolving. And once we, once it became apparent uh, that we were reaching product market fit after the four months mark, then is when we started to scale from just a handful of users in early 2021 to more than 5 million users today. It's such an incredible journey. And I am so glad that you shared with us why 30 and to be able to give small and micro business owners the gift of time is a really big deal. So saving that 30 minutes a day, it sounds like it's ended up being much more than that. But as you, as you noted, it, it's so much more than that to actually let these business owners have these valuable insights into what is happening, what the, the patterns are. It's no wonder that you have scaled the way that you have, but it's still hard to imagine going from a, a pilot to 5 million users in such a short period of time. But when you have the right recipe, and again, time is so valuable when you can deliver, it's no wonder that you've had such great success, Luis. So the reality is that you are in a competitive space. And I, and I think that's why it's been so critical for you to continue to, uh, from the very beginning, be benchmarking against competitors and really looking at how you're finding the new users. Uh, let me ask you, with with new capital and an extremely competitive space in Latin America for fintech, what's the plan to keep Trenta's edge? 
it, it is true that uh, the last, I'd say like 24 months have been crazy in terms of the amount of capital that you into into the into the region and particularly in fintech. And I think we still haven't seen most of the impact that that will have in the competitive landscape. And I think it's a good thing because also much of that capital is geared towards uh, building the fintech infrastructure that will help other fintechs thrive. So uh, I think it's positive. But in terms of what do we think we need to do to keep our reds, there are two things that we prioritize. Number one is having a very seamless customer experience. Uh, still today, financial services industries dominated by establishment players that have very bad customer service and their products are not stable at all in terms of, from a technical standpoint, meaning that they are under maintaining very often, they have a lot of bugs, etc. So many of the fintechs that have been successful in Latin America until today based their success just on having very high customer service and very solid products. Like the example of Nubank, based in Brazil, the largest neobank in the world, Mm-hmm. attracted their 60 million users mainly by having a much superior customer experience and unstable product. Mm-hmm. And I think this will continue to be a must, but it will not be enough. But at Trenta, we've focused on having this since day one. So, for example, the metric that we, one of the metrics that we have for our customer experience teams is that we need to have an answer to a WhatsApp message from, from our users in less than a minute. So that's a standard wow. that we hold ourselves to, which is challenging sometimes because you know, sometimes the inflow can be more than expected, but that's what we that what we want to do always. And also in terms of the product, compared to most startups, we have many more filters that a new release, a new version needs to go through before being a the productive app that can be accessed by users because we cannot afford or we don't want to, to have any sort of bug or any sort of instability in the platform. And the second thing that, that I think FinTech will need to do to be successful and to keep our edge, and that's what we're trying to do, is not only focusing on a product. And I think until today, you could be successful only with a FinTech, with a payment startup or investing startup or a lending startup, I think moving forward, you will need to create or, or we will need to create an ecosystem. And that's basically the train test strategy. So not only having a handful of, not only having one or two fintech products, but just like the full suit of products, payments, wallet, lending, insurance, etc. And also combined with non-fintech products like marketplace, like the inventory management, bookkeeping, etc. Because number one, users will want to have everything in one place. So if they have a bank account with Mm -hmm. one startup, they want to be able to get lending from the same startup because it makes their life easier. And number two, because by having this set of products allows you to have a higher LTV, which allows you to be able to afford higher CAC and attract the best users. And also there are tons of operational synergies that occur among the products. Yeah. Well, I don't doubt that Trenta will keep its edge. Um, uh, 
the ingredients for success that you laid out, Louise, you know, being able to provide that much superior customer experience and stable product. Um, well, let me just ask you, you know, being able to have an answer to a customer's WhatsApp message in less than one minute seems incredible. Can I, uh, can I probe there a little bit more and just ask how you're able to deliver uh, that level of uh, superior customer experience? There are a few components to it. So and the first and foremost, and probably the most important one is that we allocate the resources that we need to allocate to customer experience or customer service. Many startups, um, for many businesses, in general, customer service is something that they need to do, but they don't really enjoy doing. And it's just... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, just because they try to minimize. And for us, it's something that deserves every single dollar that we put into it. So number one, like we have enough people, enough capacity to answer all of the requests that, that come by. We use a lot of data as well. So we track very well. We can pinpoint very well like the types of requests that we get. And there is a very clear pattern. So we mm -hmm. know what kinds of requests we would be getting at what time of the day, at what time of the week. And with that, we are able to much better plan and give very fast answers. And I'd say the third component is also we invest in, in certain tools mm -hmm. to make everything easier. That's well, and, and taking it next level by really building out a full suite of products to support the businesses that you're currently supporting. I can, I can see how that's going to be so attractive. And I feel so much passion in what Trenta has built and what it can do for the businesses that you're currently supporting. So I want to, I want to turn us a bit from the acceleration and the incredible hyper growth that you've been experiencing and sort of better understand your global culture. Um, prior to having you on, we spoke with one of your team members about how people are really flocking from other countries to Colombia just to work with Treinta. Can you tell us, Luis, how are you managing the different cultural backgrounds and working relationships to keep a large team on task and rowing in the same direction? Of course. So my, my opinion on culture, on company culture, is that it has two main drivers. Number one, the culture of a startup is an extension to the leader's personality, and particularly founders. And number two is what you hire for. So the culture is also like the average culture that people had before joining the startup. So we make sure that uh, we hire people that we think can have very good fit or already have very good fit with the culture of the company. Mm -hmm. For example, we want to build and we have a hardworking culture. And that means that uh, the founders work very hard and the leaders of the company work very hard. People see that. And number mm -hmm. two, as part of the interview process, we ask people whether they agree that working hard is a must-have in a startup to, mm -hmm. to become successful. So by having that incorporated into the recruitment process, um, 
it makes it easier because the people that we hire in the first place already have a set of values mm-hmm. that are probably more similar uh, versus the average population coming from different countries. Uh, secondly, we do have people from different nationalities. Still, most of them are from Latin. And there are exceptions like the founders that come from Spain and some others that also moved from Europe to, to Latam. Um, and it's true that there we have people in many countries in, in, in Latam, which overall I'd say the culture is relatively similar with some differences that we need to uh, take into account. For example, when we are researching users in Mexico, we understand that their culture is a bit more, they are less confrontational versus other places in Latin, for example, versus Colombia. And it's hard, it's much harder to get like direct feedback on the product. So we need to change our interview style with users to make sure that we get that real feedback. And also another example, and we have people in Brazil and there are certain things that are a bit different versus Colombia. For example, if you're a manager in Brazil and want to ask, for something, uh, you would say, for example, do this report by 7 p.m. While in Colombia, to ask for the same thing, you need to say, would you mind doing this report? Uh, I really need it by 7 p.m. because of blah, 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 please, blah, blah. That's so, interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So if you have a Brazilian manager and a Colombian analyst, um, if you do not make them aware that these cultural differences exist, and the analyst can be upset by the way that the Brazilian manager is referring, is, is, is communicating. So there are like small things here and there that that we try to manage, um, but it, that, it hasn't been a problem so far. Well, these are, these are other keys, I think, to what has been Trinta's success, sort of getting that commitment up front from candidates and then really taking the effort to understand and appreciate the differences in culture. Those, again, clearly keys to success. Uh, Okay, Louise, switching back, what verticals or new products are you most excited for in the coming months? Is there anything in this sort of growing suite of products and the building of the ecosystem that you can share with our listeners? Absolutely. We are focused on two different things at the moment. Number one is we are building a B2B marketplace that allows our users to buy wholesale products uh, via, via Trenta. And we connect suppliers that upload their products into the system. It's something that we have just launched. It's very early stage. There are still many features that are not available. And we're only live in two cities in Colombia, in Bogota and in Cali. So that's something we're working very hard on. And it's extremely promising. And secondly, we are also going to launch very soon our own POS terminal a card reader that allows our users to accept uh, debit and credit cards and also is integrated with the rest of the functionality of the app. So those two are... Oh, that's exciting. Good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. We have very good science. We'll basically be the basis of our business model in this 
early early days of monetization for us with the vision to include much more products and services in the long run. Beautiful. So Luis, one thing that we like to do on our podcast is share practical tips with other founders and leaders. And you recently released a LinkedIn post that I really appreciated. And the ultimate message being never underestimate yourself. Can you tell us more about what it was like to pick up and move your life and and maybe also who some of your first supporters were for those who haven't had a chance to um, read your very inspirational uh, LinkedIn post? Well, I think what it was like to pick up and move my life, how society looks at entrepreneurship overall, or how it's portrayed in the media, is very different to reality. So something I, I tend to say very often is, if you have a prestigious job, like the one I had working for McKinsey before uh, starting Trinta, or if you work in banking or in a law firm or in big tech or whatever prestigious job, the amount of risk that you really have by starting a company, leaving your, start, your job and starting a, a company, is really very low, especially if, if you are young. So I was 26 when I started. Everyone, mm-hmm. when I said I was going to leave McKinsey, <laughs> raised me. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When everyone, everyone really like praised me on the on the courage that I was having. But the way I looked at it and the way I still look at it now is the risk that you have personally is pretty low because money-wise, really your salary if you're young, it's not that big in the first place. Mm-hmm. If you have this background, you will probably be able to raise a seat or a pre-seat round pretty mm-hmm. soon. So you can have a salary again after a handful of months. And many of these companies have a severance packet that in my case was equivalent to several months of salary. So the amount of time you will have without the salary would be pretty low. It's true that maybe you won't have the same salary or you will definitely not maximize your earning potential, but you can have a decent salary and it's accepted by the VC community. Everyone, every single one of your investors will want you to be comfortable with your life. Yeah. So you don't really have a money. You, you don't have to have a money problem or it's not a big risk. Anyhow. And number two, career-wise, I don't think it's a risk either. Like the worst thing that can happen is you spend one or two years learning a bunch of different skills. And today, increasingly, having an experience as a startup founder is looked, it has a positive impact on your, on your CV. So you can always go back to the industry where to the industry where you came from and probably even in a more senior position. So both from a money perspective and from a career perspective, it's not a massive risk. So my tip there or my what I would tell aspiring entrepreneurs is do not look at it how society tells you to look at it as a big risk. Because if you think it through, it's not that big of a risk. Obviously, there are exceptions if you are much older, if you have a big family, if you do not come from a very mm-hmm. uh, prestigious background, that 
could potentially be difficult to get the job. And if your startup fails, then there are nuances depending on your background. But for most people, it's not a big risk. And my first supporters, I've really been, been very overwhelmed by support and people cheering me up since the since day one. Obviously, my close family and friends, but I've been super surprised on the amount of support I've had from not so close friends or even acquaintances. I get a message every now and again from someone I haven't spoken with for one or two years that followed my story in LinkedIn. And they just message me and tell me that they are cheering from the side and that they are super happy about the success that we are having. Um, I think for for anyone that that wants to start a startup, like something that he or she will not lack is is support because it's it's, it's truly amazing how people react when you you are trying to build something. Cheerleaders are very important for all of us and especially the brave founders and leaders out there. And I I just think that your practical tips for other founders are um, worth remembering. And and I certainly won't forget, uh, take risks, invest in yourself and never underestimate yourself. Those are such important messages and, and, and appreciating your cheerleaders. So I always like to end our podcast episodes by telling the audience a fun fact, story, favorite movie, drink of choice, whatever you want, Luis. Uh, And I'll start by sharing that I love to play games and backgammon is a favorite. It's quick and portable. And I I recently learned when playing uh, a game of Trivial Pursuit, which is not necessarily so quick, that backgammon was the very first known game to use dice. And backgammon dates back to 3000 BC. I had no idea. Anyways, Luis, anything that you're willing to share? Yes, actually, a fun fact about me and my co-founder was back 10 years ago when we just had met at university, we... We're in the first class ever in economics and was one of the first days at university. And we both <laughs> fell asleep during a class and we were kicked out from the class at the same time. <laughs> and we were just like hanging out in the corridors, uh, getting to know each other because at that time we had just met. I don't know. I, I cannot remember much after that, but who knows if that later on in us becoming close friends. But oh, <laughs> that is a good fun fact. So, yeah. Well, Luis, I hate to um, have to wrap our episode. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. So in just two years and five million small business owners and a strong Series A, Trenta has sprinted into quick success by digitizing business ledgers from paper records to managing a small business all online. And we look forward to seeing where the journey goes from here. Thank you so much, Luis. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Natalie. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. 
You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.